Hey everyone, it's Tween Teen Tales with Aussie Dad, and today we're going to continue on with the book, The Odd Ones Out. Chapter 9. Son, it's time we talk about the crickets and the worms. After the traumatic kindergarten moth incident, I decided I wasn't a fan of insects anymore, but sometimes you can't avoid them. Like, one time, I volunteered to watch a friend's pet frogs while he was away on vacation. Along with a frog habitat, he gave me a box of feeder crickets. Sadly, after the first day, I didn't put the lid securely onto the box and all the crickets escaped. Yeah. Look, I never claimed to be super responsible. This was bad for two reasons. One, now we had nothing to feed the frogs. And two, there were a bunch of rogue crickets in my bedroom. Luckily, crickets make a loud noise at all times for no reason, so you'll always know that. Yes you do indeed have crickets in your bedroom. It was like they were taunting me. We tried to put the crickets back in their prison, but it turns out they didn't want to be eaten, so we ended up using the vacuum. But even with that method, we didn't catch all of them. After the loud vacuum turned off, the crickets seemed to think it was their turn to be as loud as possible. Those were tough nights. Hopefully, they all starved to death. Don't feel sorry for those crickets, though. Their one and only purpose in life was to be food for amphibians, and they got to survive. Since all of the food had escaped, my family caught wild crickets outside to keep the frogs from starving. But I don't want to talk about insects anymore. Instead, I'm going to tell you another rescue and release story, about worms, which is only a small step up from insects. They're pretty much pink caterpillars that don't have a cool final evolution. Has anyone ever told you that if a worm gets cut in half, it turns into two worms? Well, it turns out that's a myth. The only worms that have that superpower are planarian flatworms, which don't even look like worms. I live in the desert of Arizona. Even the early birds here don't get the worms because worms aren't native to the desert. This is because the soil here is basically dry dirt and clay. Here's a fun factoid. A little way down in the ground, we have a layer of cement-like soil called Kalish. Kalish is so dense, the Native Americans who lived in Arizona used it to build their houses. The Casa Grande ruins in Coolidge are still standing after 700 years. The point being, any soil that can be used to construct a centuries-old two-story house isn't going to be good for growing things. You can dig a hole and plant a tree, but that tree's roots aren't going to make it through the Kalish. They will run across your lawn and tap on your window asking for a drink before they'll dig through the Kalish. So if you want to grow things like a garden or trees in Arizona, you have to improve the soil. The best way to do this is to buy new soil and throw it on the ground. But there are other methods too. You can also compost, mulch, fertilise and aerate before you give up and buy new soil. My parents have always had delusions about growing a garden. They've done all of the above in an attempt to grow tomatoes. It never really worked though. One day my mum and I were out walking in a neighbouring subdivision and it happened to be raining. In other states when it rains, people stay inside and wait it out, hoping for better weather. In Arizona, people happily rush outside and start singing or fan their car. They try to remember how to work their windshield wipers. While we were walking outside in the rain, we happened to notice that there were worms on the sidewalk in front of one particular house. 
These people had obviously imported worms from a store to improve their landscaping. According to a nature website I read once, worms are often called nature's plough. They burrow through the ground and aerate the soil, which lets in water and oxygen. If they hit hard earth, they eat it. How many of you can say that about your problems? Worms eat organic matter and poop out their weight every day. And worm poop makes good soil. Think about that the next time you eat something that grew from the ground. But worms are intelligent creatures. Throw a little water on them and they'll crawl out of the safety of their dirt homes and try their luck in the middle of a road. That's just never going to end well. Worms can't drive. And so as we stood in front of this house, some of nature's plows were hurrying to their death by travelling away from the dirt and into the road. My mum thought it would be a good idea to try to steal, uh, save some of the worms and use them for our garden, which at the time was growing mostly tumbleweeds. Hey, it's not stealing somebody's worms if they're on a death march crawl to the middle of the street. We were rescuing them. At any rate, when we came home from the walk, my mum told me to take a bowl, drive back over to that subdivision and get some of the worms for our garden. Perhaps the saddest thing about this story is that this isn't even the strangest request I've gotten from my parents. I didn't want to do it, but I'm a good son, so I got an old bowl and drove over. At first, things went well. I parked the car, I walked over to where the worms were fleeing, they're not that fast, so it's not that hard to catch them, and using a stick, I scooped up a bunch of worms and put them into the bowl. Worm rescue accomplished. And if the neighbours looked out, they'd probably think, Hey, it's that weird kid who used to come out every night to catch crickets. Is he stealing our worms now too? I put the bowl on the seat beside me and started to drive home. The thing about worms is that when you touch them with a stick, they roll up into a circle and play dead. I guess they think this makes them less appetising to predators, but actually... Any animal who would eat a worm in the first place is probably not going to be that picky about eating one that's been dead for a few seconds. So at first, all of the worms were calmly playing dead in the bowl. But as I drove down the street, they seemed to come to the realisation that they didn't need to play dead anymore. And all of them began trying to escape from the bowl. For creatures who are stupid enough to go charging into a street to take on cars, they're pretty good at escaping from bowls. I should have realised that if worms are good at climbing up out of the ground, of course they would be good at climbing out of a bowl. While I was driving, I looked over and noticed that several of them were halfway out. I did what anybody in that situation would do. I screamed. Then I drove the car with one hand while simultaneously trying to shake the worms back into the bowl. This is not a good driving technique especially if it happens to be raining and you still don't know how to work the windshield wipers. Some of you are probably thinking, James, your life's not worth a bunch of worms. But the thing is, I couldn't focus on driving while I knew that every passing second, another worm was escaping and probably going to rot underneath the seats. Besides, I was going out with friends later and I didn't want to have to say, hey, in case you feel anything wet and slimy slithering around your seat, it's just a bunch of worms. So, yes, I drove home one-handed while shaking the bowl to get a bunch of worms to play dead again. When I finally got to my house, 
I went to the backyard and threw them in the garden, and I never saw them again. I don't even know if they were smart enough to stick around and burrow into the ground, or if they headed straight toward the street and their impending deaths again. Maybe the early birds showed up and got them. The garden didn't really get any better after that, so it's hard to tell. Some people ask me why I always end my YouTube videos with the phrase, wear your seatbelt. Experiences like this are probably why. Chapter 10. Georgie vs. the Chihuahua One of the most frustrating things about owning a dog is that you can't ask them questions. And there's a few cartoon pictures of James trying to ask his dog questions, such as, Why do you hate laundry baskets so much? What's in your mouth? Do you see a ghost? The most important question I wish I could ask my dog Georgie is, Why do you hate chihuahuas? Georgie is fine with other dogs. Maybe it's because she's on the small dog end of the canine spectrum and doesn't want to tick off bigger dogs. The only dog breed that Georgie hates is Chihuahuas. I don't know what Chihuahuas ever did to her, but she hates them with an intense and persistent passion. Georgie is a Westie, and those were bred to kill rodents, so I guess it is entirely possible that Georgie is so stupid she can't tell the difference between a Chihuahua and a rat. This wouldn't be much of a problem, except that a neighbour who lives a few streets down from us has a Chihuahua. I'm pretty sure my dog thinks our neighbour is out walking her pet rodent every day. Whatever the case, Georgie has decided that the Chihuahua is her arch nemesis. The first time I found out about this relationship, my older brother had just come home from work and was in the driveway getting things out of his car. Georgie stood by the front window barking frantically. I thought she was just excited that Luke had come home and wanted to see him. I opened the door, expecting Georgie to trot over to Luke. Instead, she completely ignored him and dashed across the yard to our neighbour, who we will now refer to as the Chihuahua Lady, outwalking Arch Nemesis. I was surprised, but not worried. Georgie has always gotten along with every other dog she's met. In fact, our family became friends with another neighbourhood family because every time she sees their dog, Coco, in the park, she barks until we take her there. This social visit usually involves Georgie sniffing Coco's butt and peeing wherever she thinks Coco has peed. This is what best friends do, so Georgie gets along with others. Anyway, I was just about to call out to the Chihuahua lady and tell her not to worry because Georgie is a friendly dog when I saw my dog transform into Satan. The lady tried to protect her chihuahua by yanking its leash so that the dog was lifted off the ground. Little arch nemesis was barking and yapping and trying to bite Georgie because apparently he'd never noticed that every other dog is bigger than him. The chihuahua lady kept turning her body away from Georgie and Georgie kept chasing after her dog until the chihuahua was basically airborne and swinging around like he was hooked onto a ceiling fan. I don't know why she didn't just pick her dog up. Don't worry, the chihuahua was fine, I think. I finally reached my dog, picked her up and apologised. I've never seen her act this way, I said. I don't know what got into her. The chihuahua lady was understandably upset. Your dog has already done this once before, she told me. Your little sister had your dog at the park and she tried to attack my dog there. I wouldn't have believed that story if I hadn't just seen my dog act like she was possessed by demons. I apologised some more, hauled Georgie inside and gave her a stern talking to. 
I'd like to say that the story ends here and my dog was well behaved after that, but no, that's not what happened. There's still a lot left in this chapter. Georgie, for whatever canine reason, decided it was her job to eradicate all chihuahuas from the neighbourhood. Every time my sister and I took her on a walk and we passed the chihuahua lady's house, Georgie went ballistic. She barked and pulled on the leash until she was choking herself. Again, I never claimed she was a smart dog. And she insisted on peeing on the sidewalk in front of her arch nemesis's house repeatedly because Georgie wanted the chihuahua to know she'd been by. A couple of times when we opened the door to let someone in, Georgie ran outside and sped off toward the chihuahua lady's house. We always caught her by the gate trying to tunnel her way into their backyard. Any time she tried to do that, we put her in her kennel as punishment. So she knew that this was bad behaviour, but she never seemed to care. And then, one day when my parents were out of town and I was in charge, things got worse. This is probably an indication that I should not be in charge. At least not in charge of my little sister Ariana and my sometimes demon-possessed dog. My sister had taken Georgie to the park with her friend and for some reason, the reason being that she doesn't listen to instructions, Ariana let Georgie off the leash so the dog could sniff around while Ariana and her friend played. According to my sister, she was about to put Georgie's leash back on when suddenly Georgie's ears perked up and she took off running. Mind you, this is a dog who frequently cannot find a piece of hot dog that has been thrown to her on the floor. However, she could apparently pick up the scent of the chihuahua from a quarter mile away. My sister chased after her, but even the smallest dog can outrun the fastest person, and Ariana isn't the fastest person. It makes no sense. People have much longer legs and are stronger too, but nearly every other animal in the world is faster than us. My sister didn't have a chance of catching our dog. Georgie reached the chihuahua, a fight ensued, and the chihuahua did not do well. By the time my sister pulled Georgie off the other dog, he was bleeding. Everyone was very upset about this except for Georgie. The chihuahua lady was furious and my sister was in tears. Ariana took Georgie home, put Georgie in her kennel and gave her another one of those stern lectures that are completely wasted on our dog. A few minutes later, the chihuahua lady rang our doorbell. When Ariana answered, the chihuahua lady asked to speak to her parents. Ariana said, my parents are out of town. Who was in charge while they're gone, the chihuahua lady asked. My older brother, Ariana said. That's me. I had nothing to do with this whole ordeal. I was at improv practice at the time, but suddenly I was responsible for my possessed dog and my sister, who'd let a demon loose on the world. The chihuahua lady said she'd be back and threatened to call the police because we couldn't control our dog. I mean, sure, this was the third time Georgie had attacked Arch Nemesis, and the chihuahua lady had every right to be mad at Georgie, but you don't need to arrest a dog. My sister called me while I was at improv practice and told me what had happened. And while my sister talked, all I could think was, the police are going to come, take away my dog and send her to the dog jail. Maybe they'll even put her down. And I'm the one in charge of everything while my parents are out of town. I'm the one who's going to have to bail Georgie out of the dog jail. She's going to have a record. She'll never be able to hold down a job now. Or worse, I'm going to have to explain to my parents that we no longer have a dog. I remembered hearing somewhere that the police can't come into your house unless they have a warrant. I don't know whether this applies in the case of dog attacks, 
because I don't have a lot of experience with law enforcement. Take my word for it. I figured if we just didn't let the police inside, then they couldn't take our dog. This strategy was our best option, at least until our parents came home and dealt with the problem. Then it would be their problem. I told my sister, if the police come to the house, don't let them in. Okay, she said. But she obviously had a problem listening to instructions, or she wouldn't have let the dog off the leash in the first place, so I felt the need to repeat myself with louder, more specific instructions. If someone knocks on the door, look out the peephole. If anyone on the doorstep looks like the police or a SWAT team, or is wearing a uniform of any kind, do not open the door. Right after I said all this, I realised there are certain things you shouldn't say in a crowded area. 1. The doctor says my highly contagious diarrhoea will last for months. 2. My pet crocodile got loose again. And lastly, 3. If the police show up at the house, don't let them in. No one on my improv team asked what was going on. They clearly thought I lived a pretty rad life and were too afraid to ask. Fortunately, the police never showed up. In case you're reading this book right now, thank you Chihuahua Lady for not sending Georgie to dog jail. I'm sorry that she keeps trying to kill your dog. A couple of years later we got our second dog, Poppy, from a shelter. She's frequently demonic around us, especially if you try to pick her up. But the upside is that she hasn't tried to kill any other dogs. Yet. Unlike Georgie, whose ancestors were bred to kill vermin, Poppy was bred for only one thing. Looking cute. It is the only skill she has. On the downside, Poppy will never protect us in an attack. She would lick invaders instead of biting them, and our cats could beat her up if they wanted. But at least we don't have to worry about the police taking her to dog jail. That's where we got her from. She's already done her time. So what I'm saying is, get a dog that was bred to be a low achiever. They'll get you into less trouble. Chapter 11. My Haunting Haunted House Hour. Why do we like scary things? Fear isn't a good emotion. If we were all given a choice between being afraid and not being afraid, I feel like not being afraid should be everyone's choice. But for some reason, people still pay money to watch scary movies and go to haunted houses. How did people even come up with the idea for the first haunted house? I think haunted houses are fine. I don't want to brag or anything, but since the age of 16, I've never been in a haunted house that scared me. Granted, all the haunted houses I've been in were free and didn't make me sign a waiver. I will admit that I was terrified of haunted houses as a little kid. Once when I was trick-or-treating, I came across a house where they'd turned their garage into a haunted house, or in this case, a haunted garage. I walked in, saw someone lying on the floor like they were dead, and I turned around and ran all the way home. Halloween was over. But after that, whenever I saw a haunted house, I kept telling myself that none of the things I was seeing were real. And when I grew up, that idea stuck with me. When you realise the severed hand is made of plastic, all the tension you previously felt disappears. Or maybe I don't get scared because I just don't feel emotions anymore. Who knows? Anyway, I still get startled at the jump scares, but since they don't stab you or anything, it's always awkward afterward.
That said, there is one haunted house experience that happened during my senior year of high school that I'll never forget. It was probably one of the most traumatizing things I've ever seen. And also, it's hard to forget it because I made a video about it. During my senior year, I was part of the drama club. Each October, the school put on a fair, probably to raise money or something. It seems that schools are always in need of extra cash. The football team got to do the dunk tank, the band kids did face painting, and the theatre kids put on a haunted house, which is way more interesting than face painting or dunk tanking if you ask me. Well, maybe not the dunk tank. That was fun. The drama club got to set up the haunted house inside the school. We separated into groups and each was part of a scary attraction. My group dressed up as vampires and sat at the dinner table. We decorated it with fake organs and goblets filled with blood, or red Kool-Aid, and we had a freshman girl dramatically sprawled across the table. She had a mush of fake organs coming out of her stomach. We sat around and pretended we were eating her because vampires eat. Okay, now that I think about it, our attraction didn't make any sense. Why would a group of vampires be eating someone? They don't do that. Plus, why would they go to a high school? That's a dumb idea. I hope no one turns that into a book. Anyway, we put a yellow sheet over the ceiling light for a good spooky atmosphere. We had a smoke machine, some ambient Halloween music playing. We were pretty legit. Whenever a group of people walked by, we would just silently stare at them, and then the freshman on the table would scream at the top of her lungs. Since we had so much space in between each of the scary attractions, when people walked past, we would all get up and chase them. It was awesome. Hours of screaming and chasing people. This wouldn't be on most people's bucket lists, but don't knock it until you try it. Theatre kids are very loud, extroverted people, so we were the type of kids who thrived on screaming and chasing. Especially this one kid in my vampire group. We'll name him, um, Blake. Blake was pretty crazy. He was loud. It seemed like he was always yelling. I didn't have any classes with him, but he was obviously a high self-esteem, class clown kind of kid. After we'd done the haunted house for about two hours, we were all getting tired of it. I want you to think about what it's like to be inside a haunted house. With all the strobe lights, the smoke, and the freshman who was constantly screaming bloody murder, you did a good job, freshman, the sensory overload starts to wear on you. These days, just going into a haunted house for five minutes makes me feel uncomfortable, sweaty, and dizzy. We were supposed to get a break sometime in the middle of the night, but since the haunted house was so popular, we didn't get any breaks. None. So we were all a little loopy after doing this stuff for so long. This group of people walked in and we did our normal thing. We got up and chased them, but Blake got pretty physical with this one little boy. Like he kind of shook him up a bit. And I didn't see exactly what happened, but this little boy was holding a fish in a plastic baggie. It was one of those little tiny fish that are supposed to be used as food for bigger fish. A lot of fairs give them away as prizes. 99% of the time, the fish die within two weeks because you don't have the right aquarium equipment. So you just put them in water and watch them slowly die. You know, those fish. I didn't think people were allowed to bring their new pet fish into the haunted house, but I guess the boy smuggled it in or something. Anyway, I didn't see the kid drop the fish. Maybe Belek slapped it out of his hands, 
but I heard a scream and I saw fish flopping around in a puddle on the floor. Fish look like they're in so much pain when they're out of water. I don't flail around uncontrollably when I go swimming. So I was silently panicking because the fish looked like he was going to die in three seconds if we didn't do something. I tried to think of places that we could put the fish, like, uh, the toilet. But without saying anything, Blake bent down, cut the tiny fish in his hands, then ran back to the table. He put the fish in an empty goblet and poured red Kool-Aid into the cup. Nah, I'm just kidding. He got a water bottle from under the table that the teacher had given us. The fish was fine, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks to Blake's quick thinking, he saved this little kid's fish. The kid was still a couple of feet down the hall. Blake took the goblet in his hands, walked it over to the kid, reached out his hands to give the kid his fish back, but then instead of handing over the fish, he just chugged the drink. He drank the fish. The kid let out the most blood-curdling scream. It sounded like he'd just watched his pet get swallowed by a stranger. Honestly, it was the loudest scream I heard that night. I bet the people in the next group behind this one were like, Oh man, I bet whatever's next must be really scary. The kid tried to attack Blake, and I'm sure if he had had the correct tools, he would have murdered him. Blake eventually spat out the fish. He didn't swallow it. Thankfully, it was just swimming in his mouth. But I mean, that's what you've got to do when you're working in a haunted house. You have to scare people any way you can. I'm certain that kid will be scarred for life. I was just a bystander, and I still wake up in a cold sweat thinking about it. Turned out, this kid was actually Blake's little brother, so at least Blake didn't do this to a complete stranger. Man, you've got to appreciate the lengths all the brothers go to in order to torment their little brothers. Blake's little brother, if you're reading this, first of all, thanks for buying the book. Second, I was there, dude. I know the pain you went through. I have an older brother too. I know what it's like to be Luigi. At least my older brother never swallowed any of my pets. He just stole my food, so there's that. He also never let me win in Super Smash Brothers. Anytime I was about to win, he would turn off the Nintendo. But I mean, I'm fine. Look how great I turned out. I guess this is where I should say something philosophical about overcoming your fears. You should always face your fears. Don't run away from your own personal haunted garages. That does nothing but ruin Halloween and keep you from getting more candy. And remember, your family will always be there for you. Although, that could be what you're afraid of. Uh, and that's the end of that for today. Thanks for listening. Take care.